So we're entering the, the holiest of seasons of the whole year. And you know I love Christmas, everything about Christmas. But Christmas really doesn't matter without Easter. I mean, even if Jesus was born, even if his birth was unusual, if, if he was laid in a manger and shepherds came and wise men came and worshipped him, if he didn't die for us and rise again, that's just a nice story. It doesn't have any meaning for us today. Easter defines our faith. It defines our, our, our beliefs. There's really no reason to sing there is power in the name of Jesus if Easter is not true. There's really no reason for us to be here today unless Jesus lived and died and rose again as the Son of God. I mean, it might be inspirational for us to be here. It might be encouraging. We might make some new friends. But as far as eternity, as far as it relates to forever, Jesus would not matter except that he did live and die and rise again. Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Like what I'm doing and what you're doing, it doesn't matter unless Easter is real, unless Jesus actually came back from the grave. It goes on to say in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's worthless. It doesn't matter at all. It has no implications for your life or for your future and certainly not for your eternity unless Christ is alive. This is the season that we celebrate Easter, not just us, not, not just our church or the churches in this area. Believers all over the world are getting ready to celebrate the most important day of our faith, which by the way, it's only three weeks away. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. It feels like we're just coming out of winter and we're three Sundays away from Easter Sunday, two Sundays away from Palm Sunday, obviously. So we want to start heading in that direction on Sunday mornings. We want to start getting ready for experiencing Easter Sunday. And I want to do it in kind of a different way. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he teaches what's his most famous message. It's, it's the longest continual message of Jesus that we have recorded in the Bible. It's the most famous one. We refer to it often as the Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning of that message, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives a prayer. He gives a model of of how we ought to pray, and it, it, it has like four or five things in it. Pray for this, and this, and this, and this. He, he, he wasn't giving us something to memorize and sort of pray without thinking about it. Jesus was giving us a pattern of things that really matter and that we need to really ask God for. And I, I want to study that for a couple of reasons. Number one, I, I think it's important that in our own prayer lives that we pray the way Jesus prayed. We pray the way he taught us to pray, and we pray the way he actually prayed, which is the other reason I want to talk about this prayer. I think Jesus prayed these things all throughout his life. I, I don't think he just said, look, you should do this, but I pray a different prayer, but you should do this. I think Jesus actually prayed these things. I mean, I realize Jesus didn't have to ask for forgiveness, and that's a part of it. But I think the principles that are in this prayer made up 
the way Jesus prayed because when I read the last 24 hours of his life, I find everything in the Lord's Prayer coming back. I find him saying or doing or praying everything that was in the Lord's Prayer. So I want us to compare the Lord's Prayer and the end of Jesus' life. Now, when he teaches the prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he's not under a lot of pressure. I mean, I know he's the Son of God. He knows where things are headed. But in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the, Sermon on the Mount, things are going great for Jesus. He has his disciples there. Matthew chapter 5, at the beginning, before he starts preaching, says there was this huge crowd that was following Jesus. Everybody was on board. Jesus is a rock star when he teaches the Lord's Prayer. Nobody's planning his arrest. Nobody's trying to figure out how they're going to kill him. Nobody's mad at Jesus. Everything is going great. But that's, that's one of the principles of prayer. The way we pray in the good times will shape how we live in the difficult times. And the content of our prayer, praying the right things when life is going well, shapes my response and my perspective, my views, and my actions when things get tough. So this prayer that Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, it's not just something to memorize. It's not, it's not just something to, to hang on the wall or to put on a card or put on the front of a church bulletin. This, this is a prayer to internalize. This, this is a prayer to get into our life so that when we need this prayer, it comes out naturally. Another thing about this prayer before we study it. The Lord's Prayer, and maybe you've never seen it this way, but the Lord's Prayer is a tension-filled prayer. Jesus prays into tension in the Lord's Prayer. Now, we probably don't think of the Lord's Prayer that way because it's so poetic, because we've heard it so many times. A lot of us have recited it at church or, or even at events or, or sports teams will get together and they'll all say the Lord's Prayer together. Because we've recited this prayer in those settings so many times, and it, it sort of seems like a, a poem, but that's not what it is. Jesus is describing some of the most difficult moments in life and how we are to respond. For example, if you go to the end of the prayer, Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which presupposes that we're going to be in the middle of evil sometimes. It, it presupposes that there's a darkness, there's a force at work in the world, and we've got to live within that force and somehow overcome that force through Jesus. It presupposes that we're going to be tempted to give in to things we shouldn't give into. That's tension. That's tension that we find in the prayer. He prays, <clears throat> forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, which assumes that, A, I'm going to have stuff in my life that needs to get forgiven. It also assumes that there are going to be times in my life I'm going to get wounded. People are going to hurt me, let me down. People are going to betray me. There are going to be scars and wounds in my life. And in those moments, I'm supposed to forgive. That's hard to do. It's easy to pray. It's easy to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's harder to forgive when somebody's hurt me. He prays, give us this day our daily bread, which, again, assumes 
I'm going to have needs in my life. And we, we hear bread and we think food. Chances are, we, I mean, we live in America. Chances are none of us have been without food. No, none of us have been within a few hours, maybe a few minutes of getting food. That's not a problem for us. Jesus is not just talking about food when he says, give us today our daily bread. Jesus is talking about need. There are going to be times in my life that I need things that I can't supply. And maybe that need is peace or, or hope or encouragement or some relational resolution. I'm going to have a need. I'm going to have a void in my life. And I'm not going to be able to fix it. I'm going to need God to help me fix it. That's tension. Those are, those are hard times in our lives. But this is the type of prayer Jesus teaches us to pray. Tension-filled prayers. Not, not pretty prayers, not poetic prayers, not spiritual sounding prayers, not big word prayers. Prayers that lead us into the hard parts of life and say, God, help me with this. God, this is hard. It's hard to do these things. Help me be able to do this. And if our prayers don't have some of that in them, maybe we're not praying like Jesus prayed. If our, if our prayers don't take us into places that, are, that have struggles, then maybe we're not praying like Jesus, should, uh, Jesus prayed. So the, so the teaching begins in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, with this phrase. This then is how you should pray. Tension already, right? This then is how you should pray. Implication, there are going to be times you're... You're tempted not to pray. There are going to be times that you kind of cruise through life and your communication, your conversation with God is not real active. This is how you should pray. And then second implication, you're going to sometimes pray for things you shouldn't pray for. Like your prayer list is going to get way off the mark of what God wants it to be. So this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, our Father. The beginning of this prayer is relational. It begins with our Father. I'm connected to God. He is my Father, not an earthly Father that's going to fail me and disappoint me at times. A perfect, good, good Father. We sing that song sometimes in worship. That kind of Father that I'm connected to, that's the one I'm about to talk to. Some of you know that um, I grew up in South Georgia so when we went on vacation when I was a kid, we'd go south and usually down the east coast, we'd end up around Daytona Beach somewhere when I was growing up when I was a kid. Now, as a four or five-year-old wading into the ocean, wading into the surf, the waves were humongous to a four or five-year-old, right? I was even shorter then than I am now, right? So you just think my perspective is like way down. It's pretty way down right now. But four or five, like the waves. Have you ever seen surfing competitions in Hawaii? Like those huge waves? I still have images in my mind of those waves at Daytona Beach. This is why when I go back now, I'm thinking, like, where are all the big waves? Like, when I, there's supposed to be like these huge waves here. Well, it wasn't the wave, it was my perspective. And so I'd wade into the water anxious about these massive waves. And the only reasons, reason I would go out there is because my dad was with me, right? 
The only reason I would go out there is because I knew that my dad was holding my hand and he wasn't going to let me go. And even though the waves were bigger than I was, I had my dad and I trusted my dad. The other thing I knew was that even though the waves are bigger than me, the waves aren't bigger than my dad. And I could, I could figure that my dad was 6'1", by the way. Um, don't ask. Don't ask. Just don't. Gene pool. Just don't ask. My dad's 6'1", and so I know. Like, it's big. My dad's big. And he's holding on to me, and I'm holding on to him. And so whatever's in front of me, I can face because I'm with my dad. That's what Jesus says. This is the way you should pray. Our Father. Like whatever's in front of me, you're my dad. You're with me. You're for me. You're on my side. Our Father, our implication, nearness. Not a father, not some father, not that father. Our, my father. And yeah, he's going to say, our father who art in heaven, but our means he's not just in heaven, he's right here with me. He can hold me. He can hold my hand. He can help me face the waves that are in front of me. Our father, my father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The prayer begins relational, but the prayer begins foundational as well. In other words, it describes the foundation of my prayer, and it's not in me. It's in the fact that my Father is hallowed or holy. That word means He's different from anybody else. He's set apart. He's unlike anybody else. When I begin to pray to my Father... It's not like me talking to a friend who may or may not come through. It's not not like me asking a neighbor to keep an eye on my house and they may do a good job and they may not and they're not there all the time, so who knows what's going to happen. It's not like a 50-50 proposition with God. When I say, my father, you're not like anybody else, I can trust you with everything else I'm about to ask. I can count on you for everything else that I'm about to ask. You're unlike everybody else in the sense that you already know everything that's happening. You know my circumstances. You're not limited in your power to respond to my circumstances. My dad, who's unlike anybody else, I'm going to talk to you. And here's my first ask, according to Jesus. First ask, your kingdom come Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. First thing I'm going to ask. First request when I begin to pray, again, is a tension-filled request. Because here's what I'm saying. I'm saying, God, I I want you to get what you want before I get what I want. Like, I'm not rushing into this thing with this big, long list and, and, and like three wishes, and Jeannie, you're supposed to make them come true. This is not like my, my, the list I'm going to send to Santa Claus. I'm not rushing in with that. I'm starting with, Father, I want you to get what you want before I get what I want. And maybe, maybe if we pray it enough, maybe really what we're saying is, God, I want you to get what you want instead of me getting what I want. As a matter of fact, I want what I want to change To morph into what you want. So that I start wanting what you want. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be that. God, you come first. You come first. Right, we said the, the prayer is relational, Father. The, the prayer is foundational. I have this great foundation on which to put all of my requests. God, he can be counted on. He's not like anybody else that might fail me. But let's just keep the rhyming going, right? The, the beginning of the prayer is positional. We don't always rhyme, but it's Easter, right? So we're going we're gonna to rhyme a little bit. It's positional, and that's a real word. I Googled it. So not that I'm above making up words when I preach, but this is, I didn't make this one up. It's relational. It's foundational. It's positional. Here's what I mean. Positional, I'm saying, God, you first, me second. God, what you want ahead of what I want. God, what you want instead of what I want. God, help me to want what you want. So that your will, your desire is in front of me. Your kingdom come. This is the idea of God's rule and God's rank. God, I want you to rule over me. Your kingdom come on earth. And, and I'll be honest, when I hear that phrase, your kingdom come on earth, I tend to think globally. I, I, I tend to think big picture, big issues. Yeah, God, we want your kingdom come and solve all the problems that are in the world. God, we want your kingdom to come to America and make things right with you. God, we want your kingdom to come to Washington. God, we want your kingdom over this election, right? Like that soon, like today would be really good for that to start happening. I, I tend to go to global, big picture, geopolitical issues when I think your kingdom come to earth. But that's not where the prayer starts. The prayer starts with me being able to say, God, I want your will over my life. I want your rule and reign over my life. And yeah, it'd be, it'd be great if it was over the Republicans and the Democrats and the independents and everybody. It'd be great if that happened. But, but what I need to be concerned about is, is your will over my life? Is your rule and reign over my Am I saying every day, God, you first, me second. God, what you want first. What I want second. God, what I want, what you want instead of what I want. It's positional. It puts God first. It's, it's a way of, of frequently saying to God, yes, what, whatever you want. That's what I want. Yes. Whatever you say, I'm going to obey. Yes. Wherever you direct, I'm going to go. Elmer Towns has written a lot of books on prayer. In one of them, he writes... The Christian life is one big yes at the beginning, followed by a smaller yes every day. In other words, that moment that I give my life over to Christ, I trust Him by faith, I receive His forgiveness, I, I believe that He died and rose again, I believe that He's the Son of God, and I give my life to Him. Towns describes that as my, my big yes up front. That's the big, I'm going to give you everything but then that big yes has to be followed every day after by a smaller yes. Every day after, I reaffirm, God, you first. God, your will before mine. God, what you want before what I want. God, what you want instead of what I want. And this, this starts to happen in our life to the degree that we hold loosely what we want until we discover what God wants. Like we've all got a list of wants, right? That's not a bad thing. We, we, we all have ideas of how we want things to go, 
It's just if we're going to live out this prayer, we've got to hold my list of wants loosely so that when I figure out what God wants, I'm able to adjust to that. I'm able to move over to that instead of holding on with clenched fists to, no, this is what I want. This is what I want to happen. This also begins to happen in us when we come to the point that we see God's will for us as something good. We don't see it as something that's holding us back or pushing us back. We don't see God's will as an obstacle to our happiness. We see it as the path to our happiness. We realize that joy and fulfillment in my life is going to happen to the degree that I keep saying your will first, your desire first, your wants first, not me first. You see, we're not just called to pray this prayer, or any prayer for that matter. We're called to live this prayer. And Jesus doesn't just teach us, hey, I just want you to say these words. I just want you to memorize this prayer, and I want you to say it often. Just say this prayer. Jesus is saying, I want you to live this prayer. I want this to become a part of you. I want this to decide how you react and how you choose. And then Jesus models that. As I mentioned, there was, there was not any conflict in Matthew 6 when Jesus teaches the prayer. There's no big thing going on in his life in Matthew chapter 6. It's easy to teach the prayer and pray the prayer in Matthew chapter 6. The problem is Jesus then had to live the prayer in Matthew chapter 26. And everything had changed by that time. There was a plot to arrest Jesus, ultimately to kill Jesus. It was swirling. The pieces were coming together in this plot. Everything was lining up. People in authority were being put in place. A plan had been devised as how we could arrest Jesus and then get him crucified. And Jesus meets with his disciples in an upper room and they, they share the Passover meal. And it's unlike any Passover meal the disciples had ever experienced. Jesus says all these weird things about somebody's betraying me and they're in this room and the, the cup is my blood and the, the bread is my body. The disciples had never heard any of this before. It was the weirdest Passover meal they'd ever sat through. And then they leave that room and they go to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus has most of the disciples stay in one spot. And then he takes Peter, James, and John. And he takes them to another spot. And this is what he says to them in Matthew 26. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's a heavy statement. If there is so much grief in my life right now, I feel like it's going to swallow up my life. And my heart is so broken right now. I'm so weighed down that I feel like it's going to kill me. I feel like this is suffocating me. And maybe you've never felt it to that extent, or maybe you have. Maybe you've walked through tragedy in your life or with family members, or maybe you've just been at a crossroads of decision-making, and you just felt like the weight of it was swallowing up your life. That's what Jesus says here. It's like, this is too much. This is about to kill me. It's weighing on me so much. And then the Scripture says, 
Going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, which is exactly how he told us to pray in Matthew 6. With this weight on me, the one thing that hasn't changed is my father's still here. My father's still helping me face what's in front of me. The waves are coming bigger and faster than ever. My father's still here in Matthew 26 like he was in Matthew 6. My father, if it is possible, may this cup, in other words, this thing that's out in front of me, me dying in this way, this humongous wave that's about to crash on me, if it's possible... May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. See, I think Jesus has been praying that for three years. Ever since he taught us to pray it, and maybe even before that in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has been praying, your will be done, your will be done, your will be done. And so when at the moment of greatest grief and sorrow, Jesus begins to pray what comes out of his mouth. Not my will, your will be done. I'm, I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go. Your will in front of my will. Jesus says, look, here's my will. We find some other way. My, my will is we sidestep this deal and we figure out some other way to redeem everybody. But if that's not possible, your will, Father, instead of my will. He goes back to the disciples, Peter, James, and John. They've fallen asleep. They couldn't even stay awake. This is the most intense moment of Jesus' life. They can't even stay awake. He wakes them up, and he goes back. He went away a second time and prayed. My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. This wasn't just a prayer that he taught. It wasn't just something he memorized. It was the way he lived in the most difficult moment of his life. God, what you want instead of what I want. Your will, not my will. Goes back to his disciples. They've fallen asleep again. He doesn't even bother waking them up. And then Matthew tells us, so he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. Matthew doesn't even repeat it. He says, I think you got the idea. He's he's just praying this over, not my will, your will, not my will, your will, not what I want, what you want. Instead of what I want, he just prays it over and over and over when things were easy and when things were falling apart. God, I want what you want. I want your will instead of my will. Jesus models this prayer in Matthew 6, not just because that's where his life was going to go, but because he knew there were times that our life's going to go there as well. There are going to be times that it's real easy to quote this prayer, and there are going to be times when it's really hard to say, God, whatever you want, I'm going to be at peace with. God, whatever you say, if you open the door or close the door, God, if you make it happen or don't, Make it happen. God, if you heal, if you don't heal, you're my dad and I trust you. Not my will, but your will. If you haven't been praying that way, there's a great time to start as we head into Easter. And if that hasn't characterized your prayer, Jesus says, this is how you should pray. You should be including this in the way that you pray. Choose your own words if you want to, but there's got to be an element in our prayer lives of God, you first. You first, not me. 
you first? When is the last time you've said that to God? When is the last time you've said that to God about a specific situation in your life? Because a lot of us have those as we came in this morning. A lot of us have places in our life when we really want A. And maybe that's what God wants too. But if it's not, that we're able to say, God, whatever you want, whatever you do, whatever your will is. I mentioned that first big yes that a lot of us have made. A lot of us had that moment in our life where we surrendered everything over to Jesus. It was, it was like a stepping from, from darkness into light. It was like crossing the line. Like, yes, I am, I am giving my life over to Christ. And if you haven't had that Boy, this is the day. This is the time. Easter will be changed forever for you. If you'll just step over that line. If you'll just stop making excuses. If you'll stop putting it off for later. If you'll just say, I I know I need to give my life to Christ. I'm going to give my big yes to Jesus today. Don't wait. On that connection card at the bottom of the the piece of paper you received when you came in. There's a little box that says, I committed my life to Christ. If you checked that, I would get in touch with you. I'd help you celebrate. If you want to talk about this decision after the service, I would love to do that because there is no bigger yes you're ever going to give with your life than to say yes to Jesus. And that yes is going to begin a pattern of daily saying yes to Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you that when Jesus taught us to pray, he didn't teach us a a poetic, cute prayer. He taught us a prayer that's going to be hard sometimes. So help us to live out this idea, not our will, your will. You first. And all over this room, there are people facing challenging situations. Hard situations. And that makes this prayer so hard to pray. But give us the courage to know that our Father is with us no matter what's in front of us. And that His will ultimately is good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.